Von Ryan's Express was released in June of 1965. We tend to think that we live in eventful times and the end of the world is nigh, but let me just read you some highlights from the spring of 65 to give you a sense of the world at the time. On February 21st of that year, Malcolm X was assassinated. By March 2nd, the bombing of Vietnam commenced. March 8th, the first U.S. ground troops landed in Da Nang. March 9th, Martin Luther King marched on Selma. March 17th, LBJ sent what became the Voting Rights Act to Congress. March 18th, cosmonaut Alexei Leonov became the first person to walk in space. April 5th, My Fair Lady won eight Oscars and Mary Poppins won five. May 12th, West Germany and Israel established diplomatic relations for the first time. May 16th and 17th, Trent Reznor and Chris Novoselic were born one day apart. By May 21st, 30,000 students attended an anti-war teach-in at Berkeley, where Ben Harrison's parents met. And the first skateboarding championship was held. May 25th, Muhammad Ali knocked out Sonny Liston. June 6th, the Rolling Stones had their first number one hit with I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Then on the 23rd of June, Von Ryan's Express was released. To give you just a little more context, by July 25th, Dylan went electric. July 29th, The Beatles' Help was released. August 11th, The Watts Riots commenced. And August 15th, The Beatles played Shea Stadium. So, a lot going on. Sinatra also had just turned 50 and was situated as a kind of proxy for the entire greatest generation who, after the assassination of JFK, were entering middle age and for the first time considering they may not live forever and their insipid Mickey Mouse kids might take over the world. They still needed to prove that teeny boppers with their fab music and beach blanket bingo couldn't compete with the smooth style of the chairman of the board. I mean, could they? What is cooler than a pork pie hat, I ask you? What possible place in the universe has more appeal than Vegas? Oh, how they laughed. Sinatra released four albums that year and started his own record label. He won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year in 1966, which was the same year he married Mia Farrow. Although, it should be noted on the Grammy Award tip that the Best Folk Album Award for 1965, where the nominees included Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, went to The Chipmunks Sing the Beatles. So, anyway, two generations were just starting the big cultural power struggle that defined the second half of the 20th century. And the baby boomers hadn't even yet learned to harness the power of mushrooms to bring us Creedence Clearwater Revival and Jefferson Airplane. So the old guard got one last Sinatra-led hurrah before they had to hunker down in front of the Carson show and console themselves with controlling both houses of Congress and the presidency and all the money and everything else for only 30 more years. Anyway, I want you to picture Sinatra sitting on a velvet couch in a gray-hued mid-century apartment, smoking cigarettes and signing contracts and reading scripts and banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. And he reads this script and he says, Croony doodly dee, I want to do this movie. <clears throat> I should mention that I am also 50 years old at the time of this recording, also sitting on a velvet couch that was made in 1964. But I am busy searching Know Your Meme trying to figure out if On Fleek is still okay to use. I can only imagine what peak of his power Sinatra must have felt like. In my case, it seems to involve getting upgraded to economy comfort. Still, Sinatra is long dead by this point, and I am mildly roasting him for this hit podcast, so who knows, maybe 
history will have the final say. Sinatra is fully entitled in 1965 to say, I want a movie to showcase my talent, doobie-doo. Something where I am a badass be-doo. And he is precisely that badass in Von Ryan's Express, but with an interesting twist. He crashes his plane into the middle of what appears to be a normal Bridge on the River Kwai-style movie. Here's the twist, it's in an Italian prison camp instead of a Japanese one. And there are ginger-tinted British prisoners already busy sweating through their tattered khaki uniforms, keeping a stiff upper lip well past the point of being sadistic all the way to being insane. You know, this is what British do in war movies. Von Ryan arrives and lets his Fonzie jacket do the talking, immediately dominating everyone by virtue of his rank and Americanness in a way both admirable and off-putting. He's very Rat Pack at the start in his manner and completely implausible, right? I mean, remember, he spent the actual war years boobity-boop-boop-being to Bobby Soxers and must have felt a little false in this role. But there's clearly more to come. Sinatra is not even for a moment believable as a pilot, but then he admits as much within the film by explaining that he's a civilian pressed into service and doesn't know anything about war and doesn't care. It's the move of a surprisingly unheroic character, and then he doubles down on it a couple of times, making bad decisions that result in multiple deaths. Yet he never shows weakness or relinquishes control to the professional soldiers around him. This is kind of maddening, but it's a conceit that banishes doubt about Sinatra in the role. We accept him as Von Ryan because Von Ryan is skinny and unlikable, but also fully in charge and he never wavers. From then on, it's a caper film. It veers around the first act looking for the right tone, sure, but in the end, the tone is full-on war movie and bad things happen. Von Ryan is wrong more often than he's right, but he wears us down. Now, there are quite a few train escape movies, including the already-reviewed Force 10 from Navarone, but none would dare feature a train chase let alone one that is actually suspenseful. Despite the fact that trains chasing each other is a hysterical premise, this is played straight to great effect. By the end, the sanctuary of neutral Switzerland is tantalizingly close, just like earning an income from podcasting might seem to be. And then, just like podcasting, those dreams are cut short in a hail of bullets where everyone dies. If only one gets out, it's a victory on today's Friendly Fire as we discuss the 1965 Mark Robson-directed Von Ryan's Express. Welcome to Friendly Fire. It took 200 years to turn out these other war movie podcasts. It took us 90 days. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I wondered about that 90-day thing. Does that mean like he was already a pilot and they made him an officer in 90 days? I think so. I think he went to I think he went to officer candidate school and they they pinned uh they pinned some colonel's wings on him and gave him a P38. <laughs> And some other backstory. And he <laughs> promptly crashed it. Is a lot of plane to handle. <laughs> it is. Ninety days seems a little fast. <laughs> and uh, and and it's never it's never like explained in the movie like how he got shut down, what he yeah. was. I mean, I, 
it seemed like he maybe just was having engine trouble. And like, was he carrying a duffel bag full of changes of clothes that are just perfect and and ironed? <laughs> right, like he he out of nowhere he pulls out that cap, yeah. his like his his officer's cap, yeah, which isn't what he would have been wearing as the pilot. And I can't imagine they normally tucked it behind their seat. And he's got his like dress uniform. Ryan looks great. <laughs> A hundred times out of a hundred in this film. Like he gets a cut on his head and he looks greater for yeah. some reason. He's yeah. Yeah. he's resplendent. Just that that you know, it's a little pop of color, you know. <laughs> Speaking of that color, like you're not wrong about that. His green flight suit looks so green in this film compared to the dirty green that you see in that prison. That's- I saw that green flight suit and I was like, the this is the only thing I can think of that would that sounds worse to have to wear in the summer in Italy than a leather jacket. Everyone else is in cutoffs in that prison. Well, yeah, yeah. And he's got the leather jacket on the entire yeah. time. Like, huh? Not even breaking a sweat either. Yeah, yeah. not even. I mean, the, I, I I think one of the characters that that you you don't see build on this. Uh, in the credits of this film is perspiration. <laughs> like it's a main character for the yeah. first half of the film. Having uh, having spent my honeymoon in Italy in the summer, I can really identify with some of the trials and tribulations of these characters. No AC in that whole country. <laughs> very hot. Very hot. That's why the Germans die in alfresco uh, on the on the shores of the river there. Uh, Mid war Italy seems like a pretty nice place to be if you're a conquering. Nazi, I guess. Sure, consider, considering that the Americans had just taken Messina, they're like right? pretty chill. They're having a chill cappuccino, yeah. just hanging out, <laughs> stress-free. We got this oh, more. Yeah. We got it. <laughs> Didn't they say 200 miles behind the line where they were? I guess so. So, so we're, uh, we're up the boot a little. Yeah. Yeah, they're in the rear <laughs> with the gear. Uh, that leather jacket... Also later worn by Bob Crane in Hogan's Heroes, and then later worn by Greg Kinnear in a movie called Autofocus. Are you talking about the exact same leather jacket? According to IMDb, the exact same leather jacket. Really? It's It was just in a prop closet somewhere? Yeah. Whoa! Holy shit, I'm looking yeah. at pictures of Bob Crane and there's the jacket. Who owns that jacket now? Because that was Bob Crane's signature coat. Yeah. You think it's in like... Um, Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas or something. <laughs> you just can't go somewhere and take Sinatra's screen-worn jacket either. Bob Crane had to know someone or kill someone to get it. Yeah, he had some juice. Well, I, <clears throat> I've been meaning to bring this up, and this is a great... Holy shit, Bob Crane was murdered. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. What, was it you're, over you're, the jacket? Are you kidding me? You don't know the story of Bob Crane getting murdered? I don't. Are we going to turn this episode into, the st- into some true crime? <laughs> not Not only was uh, Bob Crane murdered, it was he was murdered as a part of like a crazy sex, uh, sex and videotape ring. There's a documentary about it. And his son uh, is a Seattleite, or was for a long time. Uh, the the film and there's oh there's not a documentary it's there's an actual dramatic film starring Greg Kinnear as Bob Crane. There's the connection. The crazy sex, uh, crazy sex stories of Bob Crane, who very early on in the in the world of videotaping, uh, videotaped all his sex. Okay, so that's the movie that <laughs> Greg Kinnear wore this jacket in. That's no. fucking amazing. He wore the jacket at playing Bob Crane. Yeah. Uh, 
Whoa. That's so trippy. His son owns a recording studio. Scotty Crane owns a recording studio in Seattle where the Long Winters uh, did the second half of the recording for um, Pretend to Fall and mixed it there. Wow. wow. Yeah. So I know. Did Scotty you see Crane. any leather jackets lying around? No, but in fact, some there are a couple of. I guess it would have been under Kinnear's control at that point. Probably 2002. There are a couple of uh, of framed black and white photographs of people in the early 60s at what appears to be like an an S&M wife swapping party where people are getting spanked in big frilly panties and, and there's a couple of guys with like Van Dyke mustaches and it's a it's a whole story. Boy, the the frilly panties have got to really take the sting out of any good spank, right? <laughs> right, Ben. Right, uh-huh. Ben. You're, you'd be I the expert. Ad- I can attest to that. <laughs> oh, the other thing I wanted to mention to you guys is that the costumes, the 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 tunics worn in the movie Zulu by the two main characters, Michael Caine's and the other uh, oh, what's the other actor's name, Ben? You. Frilly panties. The mm. Lilith's panty. <laughs> Someone's got a new call sign. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> Stanley um, Baker. Stanley Baker. Those two tunics were just sold on eBay. Whoa. Just a couple of weeks ago, somebody found them in a in a prop closet and looked inside and it was and it said Michael Caine in, in pen inside. Wow. And they were sold for like seven hundred pounds or something, like a manageable amount of money. Yeah. Man. That's attainable. Yeah. We've spent more on Pee Wee Herman statues than that. I, I saw the machete from Platoon in a uh, antique store in Pasadena recently, and it was like only a thousand dollars. The actual machete from Platoon. Yeah, the one that uh, Willem Dafoe carries, and it's it's like properly documented and everything. Whoa! How could you not have bought it for just for the just for our friendly fire clubhouse? I really, I wanted to, but I don't have any any uh, disposable income right now. When so. we start touring the show, we could just put it on the table. Oh, come on. <laughs> Stage prop. Now I know what I'm going to spend my eBay nights doing, just yeah. buying Friendly Fire Clubhouse stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Man, can't wait to hang in the clubhouse. Well, I've got your, you're a plank owner, Ben. I've got, mm. I've got, I've got your, uh, I've got your little pilot seat right here. It says frilly They're- panties on it. <laughs> It's a little brass plaque. You do not want to get little frilly panties on your six. I'll tell you that much. You will shoot your ass down. Yeah. A lot of set pieces in this movie, you know? It's kind of it's kind of a bunch of big set pieces. Big prison set piece, ruined right, set piece. It starts off as a as a prison movie, doesn't it? Yeah. I was totally surprised when it very suddenly stopped being a prison movie. Like I, I had no idea what I was in for with this. And I, I guess I was imagining that it would be like a tunneling out express right. type of situation to justify the title. But and uh, because of all the tunnels that they had dug and shown us <laughs> yeah. throughout the course of the first half of the film. But you're, it's, you're like a full third of the way into the movie before any train hijinks get, get going. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's a, then it's an escape movie, and then there's a, a moment there where it kind of feels a little bit like Force Ten from Navarone, where the Italian guy maybe he's is he the betrayer? Is he not? Are they all going to be stuck yeah. on the train and find out he did it? This movie takes a lot of time to make us hate the Sinatra character 
and to make everyone else in the film hate him. Like, right away, he shows up. And it, I thought a lot about this. Like, it's not so much that he's an asshole. It's that everyone cedes that asshole ground to him, too. He shows up as the highest-ranking guy, and people are like, well, you're the highest-ranking guy. Go ahead and be the asshole you want to be. And he does. He yeah. just takes over. He shows up at the at the start of the film, and and for a minute I thought it was going to be one of these movies that we've seen sort of mid-60s um, where Sinatra, like, shooby-doobies his way through the, like, when he first interacts <laughs> with the Italian commandant, he's like, you know, hey, hep daddy, or whatever. He, he's just, he's a little bit too yeah. Vegas. Yeah. I thought it was a little distracting that he tipped him $100. It's like, what's the tip for? <laughs> he took his pinky ring off because he forgot to take it off before they started shooting. He's playing into this, into, I think, what a mid-60s idea of what Sinatra was. He's given him a little bit of, like, gangster high hat. He's definitely not the rakish guy from from here to eternity. I didn't hear those sounds of combat. He's older and and more threatening and more like he's got he's got a, a totally different carriage about him. This is Ocean's Eleven Sinatra. Yeah, he looks great. He's like, fifty years old in the during this movie. When he first showed up on the scene, you know, while he's not tipping hundreds to the 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 prisoners and and their and their caretakers. <laughs> He does really project that that fame. He blends in a little better in From Here to Eternity, but I yeah. And I I haven't seen too many Frank Sinatra films to be able to say this, but I don't feel like he can get around who he is in this film. Well, because that's the whole reason for the film, right? He he optioned it, or he yeah. he read the book and was like, "That's the film for me." Yeah, Should I'm gonna do? get I'm gonna get helicoptered into set every day and and. <laughs> This is going to be another star-making vehicle. And he found, you know, he found some actors from around, uh, you know, some British guys to make it seem seem cultured. And, yeah. And he found, you know, he found like James Brolin as a young guy and stuck him in this film. But it's totally a vehicle, Sinatra vehicle. It helps because on, on the one hand, he's like George Clooneying around as confident, beautiful Frank Sinatra guy, but. By making everyone in the film hate him, I think that that's useful counterbalance. That's something that a lot of, like, I'm going to like compare him to Clooney again. Like, a lot of Clooney films don't do that. He's just always the coolest guy on the scene. It's a strong choice to put yourself at the center of a movie and make yourself bad. Yeah. And I like the choice. I think it helps. And not bad, like, he's not, he's not evil. He's, like, bad, somewhat incompetent, and, like, also too too aggressive although he doesn't quite play incompetent he like you're never when you're watching a war film where there's prisoners of war like you're never not going to be on the side of the prisoners of war and so (laughs) when all the prisoners of war come out against him you are naturally as a viewer on their side like and crucially he's never proved right yeah he's totally proved wrong yeah they all came out against him and they were right he got them. Uh, he got them the malaria medicine. That was nice. That's nice. That's true. He also uh, got them captured and like fifty of them machine gunned and. Yeah, it's sort of a not a great batting average for Ryan here in this <laughs> film. I mean, like his his idea when he comes into the prison camp is like we're gonna ha- American troops are gonna be sweeping through here in no time. So let's just uh, let's just live in as much comfort as we can until then. Right. Cool your heels. 
that goes totally pear-shaped and he looks like a real asshole. But I don't think his he was wrong to like set out to do that. No, no. I, I think I think the mistake was he didn't kill the commandant. Yeah. Right. That's the that's the mistake that paid that paid negative dividends later. It was showing compassion for that guy. Yeah. I mean, not that much compassion. <laughs> I mean, he threw him in the hot box, th- sure. Throw him in the toaster oven. Is um I I guess I had this sense maybe from watching The Great Escape. Is there is there some like directive about when you're a POW like trying to make it as hard to keep you captive as possible? Like is escaping to in in order to like distract resources from your enemy like the standing order or yeah. or is it not? No, it is. That's that's exactly that's exactly the case in order to like it's kind of a game. You're you're there are rules about prisoners of war and you're you're supposed to provide them with red cross packages. You're supposed to treat them with respect, you know, the the chain of command is still in effect. Um, yeah. you know, your stated goal should be to try and escape and try to, you know, try to take up as much of your enemy's resources and energy as you can. And there are rules about if you're caught escaping, like how to, how you can be treated and so forth. It's, um, it's part of the boy scoutness of war that prevailed for a couple of hundred of hundred years where there were all these rules. You couldn't muss the feather in another gentleman's cap. <laughs> but you could sneak in and steal his frilly panties. <laughs> Nobody's going to take mine. <laughs> but it's in, it's interesting in this film, it's another sort of like the the way the British and the British army factor into an American sense of what World War II was like. And and the British in this case and their commander are portrayed as like fanatics. But professional army There's all this because there was a lot of Anglophilia in America in the 60s. We were really fascinated by the British. This movie was made post Beatles. So post um, British invasion. So we're thinking about the British all the time in the United States at this point and kind of admiringly, but also as our sort of chummy stuffed shirt younger brothers. Did people walk out of this theater and go, their haircuts are not what I expected? (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't even hear the dialogue because the whole crowd was just screaming at the screaming. (laughs) (laughs) But like really interesting that that dichot or the the uh, the tension between Ryan's character and the and the Trevor Howard character. I love that guy's salute the way his his hand kind of like bounced almost like it was a mechanical object (laughs) when he saluted. Everybody's salute was really like. You know, it was like uh, like looking at the at the shoes of people back in the day to know what country they came from. Like your your salute really betrays something about your your culture. Yeah, that fa- the way the fascist salute is re- received by people. I really wish you could tra- I could be transported back in time to see because we see it in movies all the time where somebody gives like a really like heel clicking Nazi salute. And mm-hmm. someone else a little bit rolls like their Laura eyes. Laura Ingram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when Laura Ingram is really, like, <laughs> but then everyone else uh, kind of rolls their eyes at them, like, "Oh, what a Nazi!" 
yeah. and you see that you actually see that in this movie like oh nazis yeah this is not the first movie we've had where somebody that's on that side of the of the fence is like give me a break with these goddamn nazis yeah <laughs> and you and you see that you see that really play out in the salutes like if you're if you are really serious about your fascist salute Everybody else goes, oh, here he goes again. That's fairly universal, right? Like, no one likes a company man. Right. Like, and and that person doing that kind of salute is just always more Nazier than thou. Yeah. And it's just irritating <laughs> to everyone around them. It was Mussolini and his fascist who forced him to be harsh. So Ryan makes this deal for the delousing powder and the medicine, uh, but he isn't able to get the troops new clothes. And so he orders the prisoners to strip and burn them. My question for you is in the aftermath of this scene in the wide shots, are the prisoners wearing flesh colored butt underwear or are they actually (laughs) uh, filmed naked from the rear? I mean, you guys are the ones with the big expensive TVs. I I watched this movie on my phone. I could not figure this out, Ben. Could you? I'm almost positive it was butt underwear. I I thought that those were tan tan lines and naked butts huh was, was my read that would have been an um, interesting scene to be an extra in I guess it explains the hard R rating <laughs> of Von Ryan's Express I feel like uh, male nudity meant something different then you know like it was kind of like normal for dudes to be naked in each other's presence in a locker room context in a way that is less so now I haven't been in a locker room in a while. Do you not get naked in them now? I, I feel like that is... If like... you're a man of a certain age, you most definitely do. <laughs> and by that, I mean anyone who's like between 60 and 80. If, if, if your sack has grown to a length of eight inches or longer. It's a fucking horror show in there. <laughs> is this just a scene where you don't get naked in locker rooms, Ben? Are you just uh, like walking around in in a in a slip? I don't have that much locker room experience, but I do feel like there was there is an older generation that is accustomed to being nude in a locker room and then a younger generation that is uncomfortable with it. Not just accustomed Ben, but like embraces it fully. <laughs> yeah. Like looks Doing forward to it. Captain clearly. Morgan leg up on the on the bench <laughs> in the sauna. Mhm. It's tough. <laughs> well, but I but there's never been a time when like like a male butt would put a movie up into R. Right. It's always I mean, you always get a little little glimpse of butt. Here's here's one for the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Here are here's 400 for the ladies. This movie says. Uh, how many films have we seen? I only mention it because uh, not a lot of nudity in the films, the war films that we've seen. But you have to so imagine far. there is a lot of nudity in war. Right. It's true that you don't. I mean, the Rambo movies aside, where he's just wearing basically like Ben's frilly panties, except ripped to G-string levels. He found the tarp in the abandoned truck in the forest, John. You know that. And then he made it with his knife and some rope. It's true. He did. He made his costume. This is the only scene in the film I feel like that tonally 
clangs a little bit because they wheel out the fire truck and then all of a sudden it's xylophone music time well, and like pumping <laughs> and like this is supposed to be like the fun set piece it's like a benny hill episode but like this, this moment promises something that never comes back like i thought this was the tone change that would continue for the rest of the film but there's some dark ass shit in this film that follows the fire truck scene. I don't. I don't. I don't understand that either. I don't understand. I, 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 I. We can never understand the '60s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's happening there? That's the title of the podcast, really. But how could you put in a in a film that you are gonna you're gonna expect people to mourn the the like unrighteous death of children or whatever later on in the film, and and literally have a have a scene from Laugh In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guy sprays himself in the face. Water pressure issues have been funny for decades. <laughs> the, f- the first scene in the movie is some Germans like asking where the pilot of this crashed plane is and the Italians say- saying, oh, he died. And then the second the Germans are gone, they all like, you know, up yours. You know, it's very goofy initially. <laughs> yeah, right. Goofy. But Sinatra is never goofy. He never plays anything no. other than like super hard... But like, but not, but super hard, but not military. Just like hard, like get me out of here. I hate this. I hate you. Don't give a fuck hard. Don't it's give a, a different kind hard. of hard. Right. Yeah. Like the, the commandant of the camp is, is like the Stalag 17 commandant, but Italian, right? Right. Also a total clown. Yeah. Well, so you were saying about the set pieces. Then after, after they get on the train, it continues to be like from set piece to set piece it's like it's narratively also a kind of strange disjointed train ride toward maybe germany maybe maybe bologna maybe milan maybe switzerland yeah it's a late motif that we've seen in a bunch of films though the uh the gathering of our heroes into a vehicle that is subject to attack from the outside like we get this in Apocalypse Now, we got it in uh, U571, we got it to a certain degree in like Sicario and uh, Clear and Present Danger. Like the the isolation, like that entombment, and like the one track trip. It's a submarine movie. Yeah, it totally is. They're they're under attack from outside and from inside. Whoa! The call is coming from inside the house. It's three temples, you guys. It's three different temples, three train cars. <laughs> Whoa. I'd like to hear more about that theory, Adam. <laughs> on the three temples theory. Come on. Call sign three temples. <laughs> I got a lot of uh I got a lot of pushback on Reddit for not accepting your three temples theory. <laughs> I would just like to address that now. There's I was a, on Reddit the other day and there's a lot of hatred for me there. Those all came from my separate accounts oh, that I, I that I log see into. See how it is. <laughs> I see how it is. It's you guys on there stirring up trouble. Yeah. John's Are mean. You... <laughs> Nobody cares about his stupid history knowledge. He's mean to those guys. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. 
lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. You think the Ryan hate is over when they get on the train, like now that they're away from the POW camp and they've been freed? But no. No. Like, the hate is even worse because uh, their whole reason for being gathered and put on the train is because they think that Ryan has double-crossed them. Double hate of Ryan. Yeah. I was hating Ryan at that point. Yeah, I think you're supposed to hate him. Like, he's, he's when he pulls that rope off the wall and starts making a, a noose out of it, that is him, like, desperately trying to redeem himself. <laughs> and and th- even that is wrong. The guy's like, no, that's not how you strangle a guy, you idiot. <laughs> I say this, uh, this guy's not going to end up being my guy, but, like, the counterbalance to the hate for Ryan, I felt like, to, to me at least, was, like, I felt sorry for Oriani for most of the film. He's the guy behind the guy in the camp. He's trying to make it work as the translator. He's trying to cover for Ryan and prevent him from making a stupid mistake that sticks him in the box. He also takes the beating uh, by going out ahead and scouting uh, where the troops are going to flee to before they realize that that he wasn't the cause of them being captured. There's some tension about whether or not Oriani is good or bad. Yeah. But, uh, But the film pretty quickly just leaves that narrative behind there it's no longer did he rat them out to the nazis or not right is he i mean he's he from the moment he appears on screen we're meant to sympathize with him but that could have been a good trick on us yeah they they left that little narrative opportunity and the ipad just such an interesting costume choice from that standpoint like it it, i mean like he looks like a bond villain and then and then he like winds up being a good guy but like you're like, that eye patch is going to come back and bite us in the ass. I just know it. <laughs> it's pretty good foreshadowing. He is off the assembly line bad guy yeah. looking for sure. Like, he is styled exactly the same way as as uh, Dr. Evil's henchman in, uh, <laughs> in the Austin Powers films. Like, I feel like they based that, that character on this character. I've had enough of you pushing me around. I hate to bring up Zulu again, but the way that Lieutenant Chard takes authority from Lieutenant Bromhead in Zulu, although mm-hmm. Bromhead is a war fighting officer and Chard is, a, is an engineer. engineer because he had a weak seniority he uh he he assumes command and assumes that that's what he should do rather than cede the defense of this to someone who's actually schooled in in combat and we see that in in von ryan's express too like the major of the fusiliers is a total 
assassin just like a like a although a fanatic also a total like total badass war killer guy and yeah. he knows how to tie a knot in a rope and crush somebody's larynx but we see that scene and when, break his back at the and same break his time back. That's you right. gotta do both but they climb up on the back of the train and and major fincham is like well you know i'll go kill that guy if you don't have the stones and ryan's like <laughs> No, I'm an airline pilot who had 90 days of training, but this crucial scene where we kill the first guard and take him like, I, you know, I'm the 50 year old guy in the leather jacket to take that job. I was wondering yeah. if they were going to keep leapfrogging their way <sighs> forward. That was a really well done scene. I thought that was very tense. That crawl up to that first troop. Scary stuff. Hey, John, have you ever uh, walked on top of a moving train and all of your train hopping experience? I have. What's that like? It is extraordinary. If you're at the back of a train of like a, that's really hauling ass and you get up on top of it, like the wind in your face is is awesome, but also you get a sense and it may be it may be that at this time in my life I was also hallucinating a lot. <laughs> but you really get the feeling of that you're riding the tail of a giant prehistoric scale beast because wow. that you know the train is like arcing through these banked turns and and the power of a of a of a fully you know loaded moving train it's like incomparable there's nothing else kind of mm -hmm. like it with the with as much momentum as as it has and you're just Have you ever rolled top. out between the wheels of a moving train no that horrified me that, that was so scary <laughs> that scared the living daylight time and i was waiting for the third guy to get cut in half i was i would have bet any <laughs> amount of money that he was dead <laughs> that guy was such a red shirt we didn't need him <laughs> and he got killed later yeah. but in a less dramatic way than getting sliced head to toe if there was just like an extremely grisly death scene in the <laughs> Ugh. if this film was made in the 80s you know that guy gets yeah. gets cut by the wheels sliced this whole scene is pretty like great day for night like intercutting studio with rear projection to actual footage from the top of a real moving train like and like the, model trains fair amount of model work yeah. yeah yeah like the i thought there were there were a few effects that didn't quite hold up in this movie but generally speaking it was pretty impressive stuff yeah, agreed. The plane stuff was probably the worst of the model effect stuff, and, and even that wasn't super sloppy. I couldn't figure out exactly where the where it was all stitched together. Yeah. Like were they painting those rocket smoke trails onto the onto the yeah, frames? I think that was animation. The um, uh, train on fire scenes I thought were especially well done for intercutting yeah. between uh, practical and model the models must have been really big because the yeah. flame scale was didn't, yeah. wasn't like wildly off yeah so it's not like an ho gauge train set that you buy at the store but that's a that's another example of the the tonal s switch in the movie like like we had we had benny hill scene toward the toward the earlier part of the film and then a couple of scenes where box cars full of men are engulfed in flames yeah it's like oh am i the music is is strangely subdued during this portion of the film. <laughs> there are fewer fewer xylophones. Yeah, we get a we get a, a lowly fireman uh, shooting himself in the face with water, and then uh, a woman being shot in the back. 
<laughs> as she flees, screaming, I'm an Italian, save me. Wow. That boy standing up on the bluff during that scene is going to have a real hate on for Germans for the rest of his life, right? Yes, that was a that was a little flipperoo on him. He should have hated Americans the rest of his life. I bet he came yeah. to America like America. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody would ever shoot an Italian here. <laughs> that was a genius Italian accent, Ben. It's me, Mario. <laughs> That's a spicy meatball. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Here we go. The guys burning up in the boxcars, though, like it all—it wasn't even that it was like subdued and sad. It—it it was almost like I almost wasn't sure if those boxcars were a concern at that moment. It didn't—it didn't make much of the tragedy of of that. You know, it shows a few guys hopping out on fire and getting you know their buddies like patting the flames out but it doesn't slow them down or nobody confronts their own mortality in that scene it doesn't seem to like this doesn't affect any of the main characters in the way that i, th- I feel like it would in another film and i <clears throat> i think that's true throughout the whole film and and we just had so many prisoners of war at the start of the movie. Yeah, we need one guy that we know in one of those boxcars. Like we need to humanize one of those guys because they're just they're they're as faceless as you know as enemy soldiers in some movies. Yeah, it's true. Dur- during the scene and early on when they're captured in the in the ruins, like a dozen or more people are are killed during that roundup scene. Yeah. But we didn't know any of them, and so it's like, oh, well, I guess collateral damage. And then throughout the movie... They're escaping, but it still sucks ass. Like, they still have to be in these boxcars with, you know, 80 other dudes. Yeah, right? we never spend any time in the boxcars with those guys who are just like, here we are in the car again, like, riding through the night. Um, you're right. We the, There's a lot of attrition of the POWs. We lose a lot of dudes along the way. But we kind of don't care. We're never counting. And in that final scene when they're defending the train in the tunnel and fighting the German advance party there, like, like we're losing guys then. We lose 15 to 20 men to machine gun fire, but we don't know any of them. And it's sort of like uh, what, what, the, the quote that closes the film. I told you, Ryan, if one guy gets away, it's worth it. Yeah. We, we lost at least half of the people probably. To tr- various trains. So that files. mass checks out then. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was worth it. Meanwhile, the American army had already overrun their old prison camp if they just sat there with their delousing powder on. Sinatra was like, fuck sequels. I'm not coming back. He made that, uh, he made that a part of the contract. Is that right? I die in the end. Why would somebody deny themselves a sequel? That's not a very 1990s way to think about it. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, John, but this film was made in the mid-60s. <laughs> oh, really? Were things different then, Adam? I know you were watching this on a very tiny television. <laughs> it may have been hard to tell. 1965. That's the one problem with the Friendly Fire Clubhouse. The TV is just an iPhone taped to a wall. <laughs> it's in a gym locker room. <laughs> taped to the wall of a sauna. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about that last set piece with the uh, with the Germans chasing them in the tunnels, do you guys want to hear something that distracted a nerd on the internet? Yes, please. Yes, please. 
I, I feel like there is a beautiful Venn diagram of military pedants and train pedants. <laughs> like that, those those people that occupy that little sliver there are are uh, the most distractible. Oh, the uh, the train pedants who are like that that locomotive would never have been used in Italy at this right. time. Ben, I'm going to add a third ring to this diagram: the uh, uh-huh. people who like being nude in gym locker rooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Because I was going to be a pl- an airplane pedant, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's was Adam. Well, as I said, airplane pedant, Adam was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, were those not Messerschmitts guys? <laughs> uh, well, they were uh, BF one hundred nines. They were BF one hundred eights, which are which were kind of like trainers, and uh, they're basically the the Cessna one eighty five of the Focky Wolf, the Folk Wolf. Uh, brand line that camo looked a little off to me but the thing is they were actually like period german planes that's great which was cool and they're unusual planes yeah but they wouldn't have been typically fighter planes they were like the plane that you took on vacation yeah i don't think i've ever seen a cessna with three wing mounted rockets on either side well actually Strangely enough, <laughs> there is a Cessna that was used in Vietnam, the O2, which was a push me pull you uh, that had that could fire rockets. Coincidentally, that's John's call sign. <laughs> the push me pull you. <laughs> uh, well, trained pedants uh, had this to say: the German commander of the pursuing train notices that the escaping POWs have loosened the tracks behind them. He quickly orders the engineer to slam on the brakes, and the train comes to a halt in about three seconds. Given the train's massive size and speed, it would take much longer to come to a stop. Well, not only that, but that moment... Oh, it was so infuriating because it's like you see the you see it unfold and you're like, this train's going off the rails and into that canyon. Yeah. And this yeah. is going to be great. I was so excited for that. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, no, all you have to do in a locomotive is put on the brakes and it stops in a shorter distance than a car would. Really stops on a dime. Oh, uh, I conceived of that segment as a way of kind of naming and shaming Internet pedantry. Uh, what I did not realize was that I was dumping kerosene on the blazing fire of John Roderick's internet pedantry. <laughs> I'm on those sites all the time. That's not, that wasn't a U.S. Air Force pilot watch. <laughs> the smoke was coming out of the middle section of the lightning, but it should have been coming out of the engine. But anybody, anybody who is a who's like a, a even remotely like a physicist. <laughs> which the three of us clearly are mm-hmm. is going to is that's going why to, we're wearing these lab coats it's going to rec- recognize like the formula for momentum does not allow that does not allow that scene john loves a lab coat because it's the most like a robe mm-hmm. how do you get that that lab coat in a waffle terry cloth <laughs> custom custom yeah. made the weston on the on the on the breast like, I, I have all my uh my my robes made by the costume designers for blade runner <laughs> yeah that clear one is very sexy i thought the film was super effective in the tension that it built with the train on train chase uh-huh. like it's like a chase on an escalator it was like the canoe chase in last of the mohicans like on 
if you were to just describe it, it's hilarious. And it's just as hilarious to describe two trains on the same track chasing each other, but it works here. He's still there. Because under cover of darkness and not really seeing how long the train is and how many troops are on it and knowing how inescapable your own track is. And you can't do a crazy Ivan. Right. Uh, it's it it's a little bit also like um, Master and Commander, like the you know like scanning the horizon for the other ship. Yeah. Like, it really is a submarine movie. Not knowing if you've been made by that other train because right. it wasn't yeah. clear for a lot of the movie if that had ever happened. I also liked that this movie. A, a lot of the war they're waging is on the German bureaucracy. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, You're like all of, this form. Yeah. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> like a, a, a major turning point is when they find that they have a bunch of signed like work orders from the Obergruppenfuhrer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you thought you had us, huh? Well, look at this. We found your forms. Yeah. Unlike uh, a certain U-boat crewman, uh, Costanzo doesn't have any shame about being able to speak German. Right. And he is, uh, he's field recruited into some real spy shit. Oh, he's so good. He's great. And yeah. he does this multiple times. He he goes into into rail yards and, and delivers and receives orders and big dogs the shit out of some people. He really does. Like, That's so gratifying. You think he's going to have to show the ID he's uncomfortable showing. And he's like, no, I'm going entirely the other direction with my with my attitude and energy here and it works button your tunic yeah 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 that's nice even big dogs the gestapo yeah yeah that scene uh, over the watch he's he's translating the gestapo's words to sinatra about what he wants to trade the watch for and that growing tension in like well <laughs> Two stockings? Yeah, three like, stockings? How about a carton of cigarettes? Sell him a watch. Yeah, that was really well done. Although the whole the whole like Gestapo guy opens his trench coat and it's like full of pantyhose. <laughs> that's 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 a again like for a brief second we're back to Benny Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, very early on, the idea of Gestapo showing up in the film means like the most lethal part of the film has started. And they defang him pretty quickly by making him like a Times Square watch salesman. Yeah. You never get a sense of what threat is going to really be a threat and what threat is going to just go away without... Right. You know, know, like when the the train that's pursuing them just winds up on a different track at some point, it's like, okay, goodbye that threat, (laughs) you know? Right. But here comes other train full of... German soldiers. Right. And and you see like, oh, those guys are going off the off the bridge. Nope. They are actually going to get off and start <laughs> chucking grenades at everybody. <laughs> There's a lot of this movie that uh that's pretty comic book. Yeah. I, for how dramatic it is. Because ultimately their goal is to go to Switzerland. And I wondered, like, does is that even a safe place for like would a train crossing the border from Italy? loaded up with American and British prisoners of war actually be safe in Switzerland? Or wouldn't the Swiss just say, hey, Germany, uh, come pick up your trash? No, getting to Switzerland is the plot of a lot of uh, World War II escape films, like The Great Escape, for instance. Um, Getting to Switzerland, if you can get over the border. But the Germans guard the border. The Germans don't want you to get to Switzerland. Once you're in Switzerland, I think the Swiss are pretty 
typically pretty agnostic about it. Like, I mean, but the Swiss had like diplomatic relationships with Germany and stuff, right? Yeah, but they did with America too. I mean, they they took their neutrality seriously, and so they weren't like what, what they wanted from Germany was all of the what they wanted was all of the artwork stolen from Jewish collectors and all of the gold. So this not to not to besmirch the sparkly clean reputation of swiss bankers but if you're on reddit i'd just like to ask for a separate thread about this topic uh, outside of the episode thread for this specific movie i think that would really yeah. clean things up but they were you know they were profiteering off of the war but i think if you got into switzerland you could then repatriate to england or sit out the war in switzerland i mean they might put you in swiss jail but Swiss jail you know, full of holes. You can get right out. <laughs> that was so amazing. Wow. I'm really glad I was here for that. Boo. <laughs> but I can't imagine a scene in which you're going to just barrel a train across that border. Yeah. Like there's going to be. There's going to be somebody there. It's like, uh, hey, uh, one of of those stripy barber poles. Do you have anything to declare? (laughs) But that whole get to Switzerland plot, that was never their goal before. It it evolved in the course of the film. This This is one of those narratives that just feels like feels like the screenwriter or in this case, the novelist in advance of the screenwriter was just like, and then they found a hole in the back of the closet and they went through it and it was a passageway to another closet and then in that closet <laughs> there was a statue and they climbed the statue you know it just feels like on paper that's kind of interesting because that's maybe a little bit closer to real life like you're improvising you're trying to find a solution you you tumble along but in terms of if you had all the stories in the world to tell um I felt a little bit like three quarters of the way through. I felt like this movie could also be 11 hours long because they could just keep doing this, you know, yeah. like, and then yeah. it's kind of the mesh thing. It's like the set pieces are almost so isolated from each other that you could just randomize them. Right. And it would still sort of like tell roughly the same story. Yeah. Like, and then they took over the train station and then they had, then they fortified it and defended it. And, and then they smashed a bunch of panels and then, <laughs> That was pretty, I mean, as a pedant, <laughs> they pull up to that little switching. Yes. <laughs> they pull up to that switching house, which is supposed to be the thing that controls all of Milan, completely unguarded. And it's also like, I, I've been inside those. I know what the, it's like the, there is a board with switching uh, gear, but there's not like a big, a big lighted panel. If you smash uh, one, does it really take out the other? Like seems like that those those would be redundant and not uh serial i feel like those big maps were maybe not period correct they saw the big map in uh dr strange love yeah, the year before right. and they were like we got to get one of those he's look you can see the big board <laughs> you need to convey that information to a viewer though and right. i can't think of another way that that that's possible maybe Other- a smaller one would have made me feel better about it if it just been slightly smaller yeah you're like a real size just, queen, John. I feel like it was just a little too big for the space. <laughs> They're asking to, asking us to believe that, that that room there was two and a half stories tall. <laughs> it's hard for me to do. I mean, it's an 
When they're not at work, it's an event space. Right, 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 right. They rent it out <laughs> yeah. for weddings and stuff. If you live nearby, it's just a small deposit. Small deposit, that's a great call sign for you. <laughs> How dare you. <laughs> yeah, just keep it away from my frilly panties. <laughs> hey, speaking of frilly panties, uh, we have not really talked much about Gabriella. Oh, Gabriella. Who is found... Uh, in the caboose with Von Clement. Mm, found uh, in the caboose she's Von his, Clement. She's his consort. I love that song. She doesn't get too much to do for her third billing in the film. Yeah. But there is a scene here that I want to talk about, and that is the scene where Ryan goes back into her compartment, and uh, and there is a, uh, there's a bit of flirtation going on. Mm-hmm. He gives her the stockings that he got from oh, the Gestapo. Oh, she takes them. She takes He's them seductively. There is suddenly a, rich in nylons. There's a bit of sexual tension here with the shot reverse shot of Ryan watching her put on these stockings that is exquisite. Oh, you noticed a little sexual tension in that scene, Adam? It is fantastic. <laughs> How did you know it when you saw it, Adam? I don't know if you guys have ever seen a woman put on stockings before. I hadn't before this. Just roll them on like a banana. Yeah. Condom on a banana. Yeah, it's a it's pretty intense scene. And, and considering she's the only woman that appears in the film, except for like extras in the background, she stills that center of the film. There's... No kissing. It's just bedroom eyes without having two people in a bed. It's totally chased without being chased at all. It is super hot. And she tells the story of during the war, we make do, bad things happen. Yeah. She tells, she, she alludes to bad things happening to her mother. She communicates all of the violence of being a woman in, in an occupied country it's 1965 and so it doesn't get i mean everybody i think in the film like sinatra and probably most people watching the film kind of accept all that violence it's a heavy moment in a Mm -hmm. heavy movie but it doesn't it doesn't pause there it goes immediately to and now i'm now as a part of the as a component of this i'm also now going to seduce you to save my life to continue this Progression. That's my question to the group, is that by this moment in time, we know she squirreled away the piece of glass that she uses to escape her uh, her binding later. Well, she helps. She and Von Clement are like very much a team. Like she she does make an overture toward Frank Sinatra. But the when when they escape, it's both of them. It's both her and the German major. Right, but my read on the scene is that I think that could have been a Black Widow moment for her too. Like, is she seducing him to kill him once the door closes? No, I think I think the I mean my reading of it was any old port in a storm. Hmm. Right, well, she's not in love with the the German major. She's just working every single angle to make it out of this. Who's the port and who's the storm? In well, this? so she, she, so Sinatra's the port. <laughs> for that moment okay right like if she had seduced sinatra and then he and she's thinking that then he's gonna waltz her out to the main cabin with all the other guys and say she's with us now yeah at yeah. which point she would have become one of their team uh but at which point she becomes a port yeah exactly she's just like 
she and I don't think she's helping the German um, out of any loyalty to him. She's just like, well, I don't like being tied up. I would like to get out of this train too. Um, yeah, her character, her motivation, I think, is just survive, and and seducing Sinatra. I mean, she seduced us all. Her death at the hands of Sinatra later solidifies the anti-hero that is the Ryan character. But it's the most deeply felt death in the film. Yeah. No one else dies and is paid so much homage. Um even the opening funeral scene where they're they're marching and and every snare hit is echoed with a cowbell for some strange reason. Um it's it's not as like heavy a, a black damask as the shooting of and for all the tension between ryan and fincham like that moment where ryan's like don't you fucking talk to me fincham like yeah. that that moment right afterwards is so heavy i mean does ryan kill anybody else in this movie up to that point like later in the film toward the, the climax killed that of the one film, guard right on the top of the train oh right yeah but but we have to assume with his 90 days of training that if if ryan has ever killed anybody it's been maybe on his first sortie in his P thirty eight before the before the motor conked out. A lot of kills in the simulator. Like he doesn't <laughs> seem like he's killed anybody. Uh, yeah. Um, and now he's you know, now he's like garroting dudes and then shooting women. Like it's a it's a he's on the fast track. He carries himself with the confidence of a killer without having earned that. I feel like he could have caught else. her too. Like she's yeah. she's running in kitten heels on a bunch of loose gravel on a rail bed. She can't move that fast. Jeez, Ben, that's creepy. You you are you speaking from experience? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I'm just no saying way... the times that I've chased women in kitten heels. <laughs> Listen, when I'm doing you don't my, have to shoot them. <laughs> my train abductions and one slips out. Ben's rail car full of just full of kitten heels not even the women <laughs> he just collects the shoes what are you about a size 8 <laughs> can, can you help me put this sofa in the back of this train <laughs> I just broke my arm having a hard time with this sofa just uh, yeah, pick it up and then I want to move it all the way into the back so if you could just back up <laughs> It puts the kitten heel in the basket. <laughs> uh, Jerry Goldsmith scored this film, and there are a few like campy xylophone circus tune moments, but the rest of it I thought really sounded first bloody. Did you get a read off of the score the way I did like that? It, that it felt like it felt first blood. It felt like first blood. Yeah, like with the with the escape from the prison and all of the of the war making aboard the train the the italian uh circus stuff at the start uh threw me but then everything else seemed to work really well with the movie yeah from a from a score standpoint and from and the sound i felt was good throughout all we're doing is this bastard's job for him now's the time where we rate the war film we've just discussed uh and for every war film we discuss we come up with a customized rating system from one to five things is how it goes I'm the person who chooses what those things are. For the film Von Ryan's Express, there's a big to-do made about Ryan's watch. It's something that gets noticed. It's uh, it's conspicuous in a way that is not a great thing for Ryan as he's aboard the train, 
costumed like a Nazi. I don't know what this would be like. It's uh, it's like if you're going to cosplay something and then uh, wear something from a from a totally different era. It's not era appropriate if you're a pedant for such things. And here's the thing, guys. The Gestapo are incredible pedants about their uniformery. <laughs> you know they are. <laughs> and uh, the Gestapo guy on the on the train car in one of the scenes of great tension, I thought, was when he when the Gestapo guy attempts to make the trade for this pilot's watch. Uh, eventually trading it for, I think, two packs of cigarettes and two sets of stockings. That's right. American cigarettes, even. That's right. That's what tipped the scales. Yeah. That's got to taste good after uh, after 90 days of being at war. <laughs> you, after 90 days, you really miss those American cigarettes. So uh, from a scale of one to five pilots' watches will be the scale for Von Ryan's Express. I like liking the main character of a war film a lot. And this film really asks you to not do that, to like disabuse yourself of the thing that most war movies do. They want you to like look at that guy and see him as a hero and like want him to win and to survive. And this film comes to a point at the very end where you see the anti-hero die. What does that make you feel? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I felt a whole lot when Sinatra died uh, at the end of this film. I felt happy that the rest of the surviving guys on the train were going to escape to Switzerland. That was good. But I think one of the things I enjoy most is like having someone to root for. And that's like, I think part of the guy part of our podcast is like finding that guy to root for. And I didn't have a problem finding that guy in this film, but I think functionally that's crucial in the enjoyment of a war film. And so I think you got to dock a watch for that. And it wasn't a great film anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Which is all by way of saying uh, this is a three-watch film for me. So it wasn't a great film, but you were going to give it four stars and then you lose a watch for not liking Von Ryan? I was expecting a lower rating than that. Is Is four watches what you give a bad movie? No. It's not. Are you sure you're going to stick with this three three watch rating? All right, I guess I'm going to back it down. To it's it's what he gives this movie, John. It's not it's not like watches are comparable to Donald yeah. Duck figurines. Well, yeah, I know, not. but like three watches seems generous. <laughs> I'm, the tension is like, I I did like the film, but I didn't like the main character, mm-hmm. and I have, have a really hard time rectifying those two things it could be anywhere between a two and a three watch film for me depending on the feeling maybe i watch it again and i really like it enough for that third watch but this first viewing all right i'm gonna back it down to two watches i think i think i think you've helped me talk out my feelings in a way that good friends do this has been therapeutic I don't, you know, I feel, I feel sometimes like I give movies low ratings and you guys, you know, like consistently kind of rate things a little bit higher than me. I want to encourage you to be harsher on these. Films. <laughs> I also think that like a, a poor rating can often be viewed as a warning not to see a film. I think this film should be seen. Yeah, absolutely. Like do not let my low watch rating deter you from seeing it. There's a lot to enjoy about it. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm going to give it a nice, tidy three watches. Uh, I feel like there are some scenes that clang and some silly parts, but it's an exciting adventure movie, and it 
Um, it was a lot of fun, a lot of great characters. And uh, I think that my viewing was mainly compromised by the fact that Adam called me or texted me about once every five minutes the entire time I was watching the movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I had a tough time like feeling like I had a continuity of mm. of enjoying it um, because Adam was yelling at the credit card company or something. I don't remember what what was causing it. But uh, Do you guys sometimes fall asleep with your phones to your ears like, you hang up. No, you hang up. You hang up first. No, you hang up. Uh, Adam does here. not pick up the phone when I try and call. There? I don't pick there? up the phone when most people call. <laughs> I think the thing, the reason I'm giving this three is that while I don't think it's a great film, I think it's a lot of fun, and I never seen it before or even heard of it. I was, I had a lot of fun like having this be a totally new experience for me. So uh, yeah, three. American pilot watches. Yeah. You've convinced me. I'm back up to three watches. Oh, Hell yeah. Jeez. It occurs to me to, to mention that I don't like movies. <laughs> Why and, are you doing this with us? And we have, a, we have this movie podcast because my philosophy about movies <laughs> is like, there's so much stuff on the internet. There's so much, there's so much of this kind of thing which is a celebration of the thing like fandom criticism even now in our time is so many people think that that just means like celebrate creative projects like I love the Muppets and so I have a podcast about Muppets where I just like jizz all over the Muppets all day and that's <laughs> never Jesus been Christ. that's never been my way of, uh, of consuming take culture. take those Muppets into the uh, dry cleaners. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well you don't think Muppets get dry cleaned? They do. That's one of their favorite things. They love Gross. it. They get the little dry cleaning little tickles. <laughs> But like, oh Ben, if only you were here watching the expression on his face. <laughs> but the you know the idea of consuming and and looking at this stuff and criticizing it like it's really fun. It's really it's really like meaty, but it doesn't mean that I have to love any of it or movies really at all. Like a movie's got to be really good for me to be taken into it and for me to think you know think of it in terms of like. This was incredible rather than like, eh, this was kind of a failure or half of a failure. That's just like my relationship to other people's work. And it's what I expect people's relationship to my work is. Uh, but I hate it when people criticize my podcasts. Yeah. Thin, so, thin skinned man to be talking all this shit. So go screw yourselves. <laughs> oh, do you find me thin skinned? <laughs> Uh, and the key problem I, cause I've seen this movie a few times. The key problem I have is that I do not like Francis Albert Sinatra and I never liked him. Like my dad was a jazz guy. My dad and Frank Sinatra were contemporaries, right? I mean, uh, Sinatra was a little bit older than my dad, mm -hmm. but my dad didn't like Sinatra. He didn't like his music. And so I grew up not liking his music and not thinking he was fascinating and his whole shooby doo wop culture. I didn't mean to say wop in that sense. Shooby doo wop, not shooby doo wop. <laughs> Without culture. papers. Yeah. Um, you know, like I like Sammy Davis Jr., I love Dean Martin, but I do not like Frank Sinatra. I don't like his trilby hats. I don't like his slick little suits. Yeah, I had a, I had a, uh, 
rideshare from the airport recently where the guy had the satellite radio station of only Frank Sinatra stuff on. Yeah. And it was pretty fucking miserable. It's awful. And 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 I don't like people that like Frank Sinatra, right? The like <laughs> the people that fetishize him. Yeah. That think Four like, stars. <laughs> you know, the uh the like rat packy type of stuff. I didn't like the first Ocean's Eleven movie. I don't know, nah, I just don't like him. I didn't even like him in From Here to Eternity. And he won an Oscar for that. Liking Frank Sinatra is not a substitute for a personality. Right. Right. And it often, it so often is used as one. Like, I don't think he's stylish. I don't think he's good looking. I don't think anything about him. I don't like him. Well, Dean was the best looking. Oh, Dean Packer. is so yeah, great. Dean's great. Dean's amazing. Plus, he made everybody else look like an asshole for not tipping $100. <laughs> I just didn't like the pictures. I think within the Rat Pack, you have to have Sinatra because they all orbit around him. Yeah. But yeah. he has no sense of humor. Yeah. He's like, you could just see he's a mean-spirited guy. Yeah. Um, it's just that they all love him because he takes care of them. In any group, you need the guy that you have to pull off of another guy and away from a fight. Right. And that's Sinatra. So when he shows up in this film, he, he sticks out like a sore thumb to me from the start. He's doing his Sinatra in the mid-60s kind of like broad-shouldered thing even though he's you know five foot six and weighs 100 pounds dripping wet i don't like him from the start i don't like him because he's sinatra i don't like i don't like that he's playing sinatra in the movie (laughs) and as the movie evolves he becomes less and less sinatra and more and more a component in the movie right it becomes a it becomes a like a group effort the other characters in his in the main group of five like it is an ensemble piece and he does integrate more into the whole thing at which point i kind of briefly forget that he's sinatra and i do accept him as von ryan for a while um and that's kind of those train scenes like i am brought in all the way into the film it takes a train to get your attention off of sinatra it does i love it when we you know like there's a train i do love a train um but the problem with the problem with that is my attention is off sinatra and my attention is on like what the hell is this movie about at that during the train portions it's just like is this now what are we doing here in this movie we're we're trying to escape from italy by going north on a train full of pow's I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with it, you know, like, it's like, okay, ah, okay, but it doesn't, there are so many things that it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay off. And when the train didn't go off the, tr- when the German train did not go off the rails and, and down that Canyon, that was when I was again, divorced from, from the movie. And you're right. When Von Ryan gets machine gunned at the end, you're like, womp, womp. I mean, I felt like that was a xylophone moment. Somebody should have yeah. play, played a muted trumpet. <laughs> uh, so, like, are they betting that you love Sinatra in that moment, and that's what would make you feel anything there? That has to be the reason, right? Or that had to be the the interest or the expectation. I mean, this film did really well, not yeah. only at the box office, but like critically. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do feel like that you have to have been in the. I mean, if you think about all the incredible people that populated pop culture in the mid '60s, 
Like, you could make a list of 200 people before you got to Sinatra, as far as I'm concerned, of, like, fascinating actors and politicians and, and, uh, and musicians. But he had this he had this sway and I think you are I think you're I think you're supposed to care about him because he's Sinatra and that's not right I think that's bad yeah but to your point Ben it is an adventure movie and it's pretty good there's a lot of there's a lot of tension there are a lot of good war movie moments it's really hard for me to give this three watches I'm gonna give it 2.75 watches Wow, two watches and like the the movement from one watch, but not the case or the strap. Yeah, two watches and one American pilot watch that you bought on eBay that you're hoping you got <laughs> lucky, but then you get it and it's like it's been overwound and the spring is sprung. Damn it. Kind of conflicted scores here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to get with you guys and approach these movies with more love in my heart. Mm. Because I recognize, like, that I'm I'm a little bit like outside of the of the overall expectation that we're watching these movies, like because the because we're full of love, and I just realized, like, there I don't have any love in my heart except for my daughter and for ice cream and baths. Those are the three <laughs> things that I care about in life: ice cream, my daughter, and baths. But my daughter first. Sure. Ice cream and baths are tie tie for distant second. Um, what about ice cream in a bath? Oh, see? that's You don't have to make a choice between those two. You can yeah. have both. Por que no las dos? <laughs> you put your daughter to bed at eight. She reads comic books until nine because that's because she's her, her father's daughter. But then once she's asleep, you make a big bowl of ice cream and go sit in the bath and watch war movies on your phone. That's what I've lived my whole life to accomplish, and I'm there. I've achieved it. There is no greater wealth. <laughs> and Alexander wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> if you could be here, Ben, you'd see how indescribably beautiful <laughs> this, this lifestyle has become. <laughs> Adam's looking around the room. He can't decide where to alight his eyes. So many, so many splendors. <laughs> dreams you know what i mean sir what do we do next on this dumb podcast <laughs> did oh, you have a guy oh yeah we've got to pick a guy you guys oh yeah um my guy is the uh gestapo agent who really likes that watch uh i just feel like gestapo is like the worst kind of person but this one is is just he's just getting a watch and he's not he's even relatable. he's not even just stealing it which he could because he's the gestapo he's trading for it so he's a he's a guy that has a lot of awful power that he could wield in a really ill way but instead he's just uh going around collecting cigarettes and watches so uh so just to be clear ben your guy is a gestapo <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah <laughs> i do love that he's like on the clock and still like Carving out a little bit of time to pursue his hobby yeah, of watch collecting. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Do you think his partner gets a cut? He must have to, right? So that he stays quiet. You know, he's he just totally as dirty. Totally that guy. Yeah, he told him to like wait. Yeah. Like, here, wait out here. I'm going to go in here and make a deal. Keep How an eye on things. Yeah. Uh, Adam, who's your guy? I had a hard time uh, choosing a guy. They were both uh, railroad related. So I think... 
I think I will say that my guy is the train conductor. The engineer. The engineer. He, the, the like the Marx Brothers, like, hey, I'm a nana, I'm a nana. He has such <laughs> a weird utility in this film because his his usefulness is crucial. Right. He must drive the train because there's a scene in the film where he attempts to flee and they're like, who's going to drive this fucking train? We need that guy. So they like <laughs> drag him by the shirt collar back into the uh, the engine room. What's the what's oh my god the locomotive? <laughs> the engine room. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that Michael Jackson video? People listening to this show who are like, John's so mean. Look what I have to deal with. <laughs> He's also sort of like the uh, the proxy for the viewer. He's like the dispassionate observer of all the goings on. And yet he's never a target by anyone. Right. If I'm... If I'm a Nazi like Ben so so wants to be by by the choice of his guy, <laughs> like you. like why wouldn't you shoot the engineer? Like and yet and yet he's never a target. No, everybody needs the engineer. That's a special kind of magic. That's how you like to be, isn't it? That's Just how to you clarify, get to be my guy. My guy was was wearing a Nazi uniform but not doing Nazi things, and that is why he was my guy. Ben picked that guy because he was wearing a trench coat that Ben admired, I and because admire Ben's that a trench Nazi. Coat. God damn it. <laughs> if this is your guy, I'm really going to feel bad, but I really want to call attention to another the guy that was almost my guy, which was about 40 minutes in, they're in the first rail yard and they're being thrown into the boxes. There is a rail yard employee who leans underneath the fork of a oh, boxcar and all in one motion like picks up the tongue of the boxcar and puts it onto the boxcar ahead. While the train is moving. While they're both moving. And if he doesn't time that right, he is crushed on film. Yeah. And like the... He, well, you could see he was a real guy yeah. in a real rail yard yeah. that did that every day. He must be called attention to because that scene is four seconds of magic in this film really that I wrote around and watched four times. It was. Great. I was just as scared in that scene as the one where they were rolling in between the, the wheels. Yeah. yeah, people that work around trains, but, but back then when trains were actually hooked together, not with magnets, but like with a, with a loop over a hook, and he's just like... He's just crawling in and out under these trains. It's I incredible. fully expected a a post credit sequence that was like Spartacus. That was like fourteen <laughs> rail yard employees died in the making of this film. Like we honor their memories. <laughs> totally would have been believable. It was uh, nineteen sixty five. God, you could still use real vintage rolling stock in in scenes like this and it's like yeah these we're still using this stuff here from a production standpoint ben could you imagine like going back to one on a scene like that all right back up the train <sighs> we gotta get coverage every like, time i see a train in a movie i uh i'm blown away yeah uh yeah and they like there's a big credit at the end like a, a huge thank you screen for the italian rail authority or whatever because yeah. uh, the the logistics of that are mind-boggling who's your guy john um so my guy is one of those like strange is he a, like he's one of the ensemble he's he's one of the few members of the ensemble who who is noticeable at the beginning and throughout um, and it's the it's Lieutenant Ord, played by John Layton. We've referred to him already. He's the last of the three. He's the red shirt that rolled out from under the train. And yeah, with the uh, he, Justin Bieber haircut. He has that haircut, right, which is that sandy blonde, windswept sort of mid-60s surfer dude, 
Uh, but he still looks very British, very much like a, he's the one that's wearing a V-neck sweater through the whole film. <laughs> he's an officer, but he's young. It's not clear what he does. He see, he seems kind and, um, and he's capable, but he ends up dying during the escape attempt of the major and Gabriella. They shoot him as part of their escape. And, I think when I first saw this movie, but now he's the character identify I identified with the second he arrived on the film because when I was a kid, that's what I looked like. That was the haircut that I had and the and the hair color I had. And I think of it as like the Christopher Robin look of a, a British actor from the 60s. Um, and I just instantly identify with any character that is sporting that look. And he and this and his role in the movie, which is like the younger officer with the jaunty sweater. He seems kind of like <laughs> he would have been the he's just me. The uh, what I imagine myself, the younger officer in the jaunty sweater. Now, I know in this podcast, I'm not the younger officer, but when I'm 94 years old, I would still think of myself as the younger officer in a in a V-neck sweater. So he's my guy, Lieutenant Ord. Great guys all around. All around. Maybe not so much me, but everybody else. Uh, yeah. yeah, sure. Like, I think what you're going to see in these war films is that Ben always chooses the Nazi. Yeah, like, I think that's something that's provable at this point. The, the, like, frilly panties <laughs> guys wants are to be a Nazi. <laughs> hate, I hate both of you. He's like, no, no, no. No, no, I, li- I like the trench coat. I like that. It's just a coincidence that all Nazis are wearing trench coats. I like that alpine hat he was wearing. Oh, yeah, there, there are a number of reasons for him to be your guy, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's a real Gestapo hat. <laughs> it's a good look. There is a big, long list of movies for us to watch. We will never watch all of them, I'm sure. But uh, What? Do, of course do we have, will. Do you guys have a, uh, a hilariously large number of numbers on a rollable object i do i have our new hundred-sided die right here in my hand do we know who sent that in do we want to give them a shout give him some props i feel like he knows who he is that uh that letter's at home and i brought the hundred-sided die to john's yeah there are people out there in the world who who want to be recognized by name Yes. Uh, then there are people that don't. There are people who have interacted with me on the internet or on other podcasts who recognize that that is unlikely <laughs> then I will recognize you by name, but I will I will compliment you for your hundred sided die, and you are uh, you are tops of our special special list. Um, it's a and, good thing it's not Ben's special list, given his choice of guys. Well, I know his project. special Jeez. list ends up you know yeah, ends you up in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are dirtbags. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, We're going to so, watch every film on this list and more because this podcast keeps getting more and more popular. Our ratings true. are through the roof. You'll eventually yeah. start liking movies. Yeah, you guys are going to long, 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 long dry up any kind of Star Trek TV shows, and this is going to be your only. I got bad news for you, John. There's like 700 episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> oh no! Uh, yeah, I think we got 15 years. That list is longer than this one. By a lot. <laughs> no, I don't think that's true. There may be 700 Star Treks, but there have got to be more than 700 war movies, especially if we start well, I'm watching just saying, The Sound of Music. Yeah, yeah. We've put a lot of war movies on this list that we couldn't watch because we could not find copies of the film. So, Right. 
Uh, well, if there's a if there's a, a giant EMP, maybe we will be blessed. Yeah, by the, the Omega Pulse the is really going to wipe out our <laughs> our uh, way of making a living, isn't it? Well, aren't all Star Treks just on some kind of digital videotape medium that's being stored in like Pasadena in a meat locker? John, you should know, like all your time spent in uh, thrift stores, like there's always the section oh, of VHS tapes. It's true. It's true. Or or DVDs, the DVD cr- Criterion Collection. Yeah, they're utterly available Deep Space on the physical Nine. media. Well, that's too bad, although I'm sure there are plenty of nerds rejoicing. Yeah. All right, here we go. Here's our 100-sided die. Rolling it and off of the coffee mug, and it comes to rest. Whoa, it's still rolling. It doesn't want to stop. <laughs> 56. 56 is a third-in-a-row World War II movie. This one from 2004, directed by Oliver Hirschbiegel. It's downfall. This is the uh, this is the one that the meme comes from, is it not? Oh, you're gonna love this movie, Ben. I've seen this movie. <laughs> this is a heavy movie. Th- this is Last Days of Hitler, right? Like, yeah. like uh, in the bunker, finding out that uh, things are not going that well. Yeah, this is like Hitler hopped up on methamphetamine, screaming at people. This is intense. This is yeah. just uh, a burden of riches for Ben's selection of a guy. You're right, because it's the Nazis losing, and there's nothing I love more than that. There's nothing that Ben loves more than Nazis losing. Wow. Dressed so impeccably. I have not seen this film. You've never seen it? No. Oh, wow. It's a real... It's a, this, is a, uh, this is a must-see film. In German. Oh, good. Yeah. A German production. A German film about the last days of Hitler. Der Untergang. Well, uh, that'll be next week. So, uh, looking forward to that. We'll be, we'll all be in the same place when we record that episode, right? We will. Yeah. Cool. I will uh, look forward to ragging on Nazis with you guys because I hate Nazis. <laughs> Yet, like, not ragging on them as hard as we think is appropriate for some reason. And then John and I talk later about, like, boy, Ben was really going easy on the don't Nazis. Don't like this okay. joke. I don't find it amusing. <laughs> it's weird when you look back at all the films we've done that have Nazis. It's funny how Ben really kind of sympathizes with them. Fuck <laughs> off. Well, uh, do you think that says anything about <laughs> less so than normal for John Roderick and Adam Pranica? I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fires, a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick, and it's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music, War, is by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art, it's by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to follow the guys on Twitter, you can reach Adam at Cut for Time, Ben at Benjamin AHR, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire when tweeting about the show. We've got a Facebook group and a subreddit where you can discuss with other fans of Friendly Fire. And if you'd like to support the show even further, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thanks, we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.